This is The Coffee Break, a podcast on the state of the networking business where we discuss vendors, moves and news, analysis on product and positioning, and look at the business of networking in the time it takes to have a coffee break. Well, we, we think. So I'm Greg Farrow, as always, and I'm here to uh, bore you with my the tones of my dulcet voice and to shatter the reality that is the dream of vendor marketing. And with me today is Andrew. Welcome back again, Andrew. Hi, Greg. How are you? I'm doing well. Tell people what you do. Uh, I am the Director of Content and Community at Interop, and I also blog for Information Week, uh, in addition to hanging out with you virtually. <laughs> I also want to welcome our guest, Wendy Nather, who's the Research Director for Enterprise Security at 451 Research. Hi, Wendy. Hi there. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks. I've always wondered about the name 451. Did you not get 123? It, uh, it actually does come from the Ray Bradbury book. Fair the enough. idea inform informing the analyst uh, gig the the idea was to burn all the paper and start over you know with something digital and and more more lively more agile and how's that working well we all have to be pretty agile some of us are are slowing down as we get old though <laughs> yeah that's me pick me <laughs> I went to a coffee shop this morning and then sat there and didn't leave just because I couldn't be bothered moving. I was happy. <laughs> I just left the coffee shop to come back to my study to record this. So, Well, I guess we should kick off the first topic and on the motto of if it bleeds, it leads, how can we not talk about the Heartbleed OpenSSL bug? And Wendy, you must be well positioned to rave on about this for minutes, I would imagine. Well, I've certainly formed an opinion. Uh, probably not a popular one, though. Uh, you know, there was a lot of hysteria around this, and certainly it is an incredibly widespread problem. There was some great tweet uh, where somebody said, what Heartbleed really means is, uh, that, or, or what the Internet of Things means, unfixable Heartbleed everywhere. <laughs> uh, which, uh, you know, which I also agree with. But, but the thing is, first of all, um, you know, I think some of the some of the hyperbole is not warranted, especially outside of the security echo chamber. I'm kind of reminded of that scene in the Avengers where um, one of the the uh, people um, tells um, Nick Fury, you know, we we can't we can't go. The the navigation is down, and he says, "Is the sun shining?" <laughs> and put the sun on the left. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, is is the, you know, is the sun still shining? Are kids still playing? You know, are things still happening? Yes, the world has not come to an end because of Heartbleed. And the other thing is, you know, there's that bumper sticker that says, if you're appalled, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> I, I think when it comes to security, if you are appalled, you haven't been paying attention. Because, you know, why is this news that there are bugs that are, you know, incredibly widespread and will end up being difficult to fix? This is not news. Well, the thing is that this isn't difficult to fix. Because if you're running a web server, you generate a new private key, which you should be doing yearly anyway. You know, you should be regularly patching your systems anyway. So what's the big deal? Well, I do know of, of uh, outfits that are really afraid to patch anything because 
they they don't feel confident that they can fix anything that might uh, might come up as a result they don't know their their systems that well i do know one organization that did not patch for 2 years out of fear of this so again you know that the real world out there is people are too busy to patch they don't know how to patch they're running on incredibly old stuff so this vulnerability and a lot of others are always going to be out there and given the you know potential scope of of Heartbleed, um, all of the folks using uh, the OpenSSL libraries, that's a lot of uh, certificate revocation and reinstallation that has to go on. Yeah, yeah, that too. What I want to know is how someone came out with a logo that fast. I've never seen a security vulnerability with its own logo before. That is pretty awesome, isn't it? Yeah, that that was stunning. I thought, okay, this must be serious if someone's branding it. <laughs> Well, you know, security people can do a branding just as easily as anybody else. <laughs> I mean, that is not exactly the cleverest logo you've ever seen. That is a standard piece of uh, clip art from any graphics tool. Well, I didn't say it was great, but just, you know, it was suddenly everywhere. So that's pretty potent from a marketing standpoint, given that there's not anyone that I know of who's making any money off of Heartbleed, perhaps other than some consultants. I'm all in favor of the logo thing, right? Because look at what Oracle's done, like... If you think that OpenSSL is bad, you know, because it's everywhere, there are over, uh, I believe last time I checked, there's over 130 vulnerabilities in Oracle protocols that have not been fixed in more than five years. These are known published vulnerabilities that Oracle refuses to fix because it will make life harder for customers. If putting a pretty logo on this and calling it out for everybody to go and do something about it solves that problem, then yay, because it hasn't solved a multi-billion dollar company from fixing its software. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's a security company out there who can make a mint. They need an Oracle vulnerability logo. Oh, well, there is. There, there's a there's an Oracle vulnerability firewall specifically designed to solve these problems. <laughs> so you can spend money to fix buggy software produced by one of the biggest companies in the world, which gets onto this open source debate. I mean, you know about Oracle, Wendy, as a security expert, you'd know that they've their software. You can drive a truck through the holes in there. Yeah, well, first, don't don't call me an expert, please. That's a dirty word. Uh, but uh, secondly, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, why fix something when you can make more money selling another box to patch it virtually? Yeah. Uh, but that was the cynic in me talking. Yeah. Well, I guess the other one, too, is Windows XP. I mean, it's been vulnerable for, what, a decade or more. Yeah, yeah. And some uh, companies are now, you know, making hay on offering those who cannot upgrade for one reason or another, you know, the protection that they are afraid they're not going to have anymore. Um, so, for example, Bit9 has a campaign where they're saying, if you're stuck with XP, you know, use use our whitelisting and that'll help protect you. <laughs> I remember working with a company recently who was using Internet Explorer 7, and they decided that what they would do is upgrade to Internet Explorer 8 and then spend an awful lot of money on a tool that would give them IE7 compatibility. And when I pointed out that actually they'd be better off keeping IE7 and having Firefox for the other stuff, then they wouldn't have to do it. They went, well, but we can't do that because you hate, well, you have to use IE. I was just like in shock after that. I sort of didn't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> you can't use Firefox because only Internet Explorer can surf the internet. I was like, oh my God, remedial action here. <laughs> because it has the word internet in it, of course. That's, uh, the other discussion everybody's talking about is many eyes on the code. And I think the many eyes on the code found the bug, as I understand it. Uh, actually, I don't know the origin of it. Uh, I read somewhere that a guy in Germany who was a long-term OpenSSL coder 
um, made the made a change in response to something and simply missed the and then it was reviewed by another person in the OpenSSL team who missed the requirement and it's been there for a couple of years and I think somebody did some testing or somebody reviewed the code again and then found this problem and then it came out. So some people who are saying, you know, open source many eyes on the code didn't work. Actually, it did because Oracle's left their bugs open for a decade, even though they know about them. Right. That's definitely a positive side of the open element of it is that it is open. And so there's no organization that necessarily has a stake in keeping it quiet. Hmm. Um, I sort of wondered, though, given that the, the two year time frame, have we gotten to the point now? It's sort of the uh, tragedy of the commons argument that. Everybody thinks somebody else is looking at the code, so I don't need to really worry about it. Have we well, got to that really state in, with open source? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good point. And I think if we're, you know, to go forward, there, there are a lot of um, ways to leverage open source, um, especially since a lot, a lot of the components are seeing heavy use uh, even in proprietary software. Uh, you know, we could, we could leverage a lot of security and of remediation uh, by having better coordination and better centralized um, monitoring with open source. It's kind of kind of antithetical to you know the idea of open source that it should be democratic, but it, at least in, in we could make it a little bit more organized so that people would have an authoritative place to look. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a blog post this week from um, Steve McKess of Veridical Systems, and he is the he calls himself the money guy for the OpenSSL Foundation, and he talks about the fact that the OpenSSL has less than two thousand dollars a year in outright donations, and they do sell commercial software contracts, but nobody actually buys them, and the whole foundation runs on. It says here that in the five years since he created the foundation, it has never taken in more than a million dollars in gross revenues annually. So the whole of OpenSSL, which is one of the key foundations of the internet for a lot of things, runs on nothing, virtually no money. And the bulk of the programmers who cut the code do so in their spare time. There is only one full-time resource who appears to be a curmudgeonly um, educational type, professorial type, a Dr. Stephen Henson, who, uh, as they said here, there's a really great line. This is a brilliant blog post. He says he stands in awe of their talent and dedication, that of Stephen Henson in particular. It takes nerves of steel to work for many years on hundreds of thousands of lines of very complex code. With every line of code you touch visible to the world, knowing that code is used by banks, firewalls, weapon systems, websites, smartphones, industry, government, everywhere. And knowing that you'll be ignored and underappreciated until something goes wrong. The combination of the personality to handle that kind of pressure, da 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 and, for the, and they got nothing. These guys fundamentally don't get paid. He's got a very good point. You write the code, you put it out there, it runs critical systems, and the only time people notice that you're even alive is when it goes wrong. It takes a lot of balls to do that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is pretty tremendous. It's a great blog post. I recommend that you go and get a goose at it. It's a, it says a lot about things. Uh, so I think we've sort of, I think Heartbleed's kind of done to death. But related on security notes is there's an article here on GigaOM this week which points to the Wall Street Journal article which talks about Google, Matt Cutts at Google suggested that Google may give preference to companies who encrypt their data, that is use SSL for all of their website transactions. 
this would be a major change to how the internet works because most traffic flows in the clear so most pages that hit the internet are actually contained in open unencrypted text and can be inspected on the way through if the majority of websites had to you know if google changed its seo and encouraged people to do ssl the majority of the web would very quickly move to a full ssl and there's a couple of things here that it breaks a whole lot of stuff like NSA signing also breaks a lot of commercial tools. There's many service providers who scan their customers traffic to extract revenue by selling data about customers. And it also creates an enormous amount of load uh, in the cloud for companies who are hosting or on servers who have to now do SSL encryption. Wendy, do you think good, bad changes? Um, I think really, really interesting. Um, certainly Google has a lot of leverage um, and using the leverage for good is a great idea, but I keep coming back to how are they going to actually tell if a site is using SSL and if it's using it uh, on every page for every element. Um, certainly, you know, it's going to be crawling a site, but, you know, I just wonder how you know, how little SSL can a site get away with and still qualify for the SEO preference? Yeah, I mean, certainly any move that Google makes, there's going to be a counter-reaction to game it uh, to get the most benefit with the least amount of effort. Um, so there's always that to contend with. And, and when it comes to security, we, we don't want to encourage people to go minimum effort, um, although I'd Living in the real world, I know that's often what happens for whatever reason. Um, I, I, when I first read it, I thought, that's an interesting idea. I sort of like that idea. Um, but I also think most of the websites that I use that need encryption have it. And the rest of the time, I'm just you know, looking for informational stuff. And it seems like a bit of overkill to encrypt you know, the New York Times traffic that I'm reading. Yeah, and, and it creates a huge load of certificate management effort that has to go on, uh, including with you know, big and small sites who, that have never tried to tackle this before. Well, the right. flip side is that maybe we'll see some grown-up systems that would um, actually start to make it easier to do SSL. So, for example, handling private key management or key management in Apache, I mean, is still a disaster. It's the worst piece of code ever written. It's complicated it's hard to do it's not secure if you want to you know if you want to make your private key secure you have to have a hsm have a hsm you have to have a whole bunch of either custom cloud or all sorts of problems and pki interfaces despite all of the waffle coming out of the security industry and hot air that they make pki is still not easy to use much less key distribution into browsers yeah it's been the year of pki for what uh, 20 years now no it hasn't <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever done PKI successfully without an unlimited amount of money to make it happen. I mean, I've been involved in any number of PKI deployments, and they're all a fumbling failure, no matter what the vendor claims. The software is just broken. They, the user experience, the key distribution process, the security people want to overblow it. You know, they want to make it more complicated than it needs to be and, and stop having a balance. You know my opinion on security people, Wendy. Uh, well, no, do do tell. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, lay it out there. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, look at browsers. How easy would it be to revoke the, the keys in a browser, the public keys in a browser? Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying Google should do this so that we actually get a better crypto system in place yeah. because it would sort of force the issue? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Uh, because yeah. as soon as you start encrypting everything, key management becomes vital. But sure. if we start now, then by the time we actually solve this problem in a decade, 
we might have some key management systems that you know security people might have started growing up and acting their age and being realistic about practical key management instead of anally retentive key management that like it came out of a textbook is that where you keep the keys <laughs> <laughs> some some security people certainly do <laughs> touche speaking of which uh perhaps into the uh i saw a little article this week let's jump from software to hardware niche sram so there's an article here on the ee times talking about sram production is shrinking but that networking is continuing to drive hardware innovation uh, around the SRAM market. Particularly the drive for 100 gig and 40 gig means that SRAM is needed to do high speed uh, memory lookups to be able to load the forwarding tables. Uh, the reason I thought this was interesting is that everybody's running around in a flap about SDN and saying how tremendous software, you know, people like Mark Andreessen making you know fluffy statements like software is eating the world. But uh, I also want to point out that hardware drives the software and you need to keep an eye on both. And I think I'm becoming more convinced rather than think that hardware is going to be a significant part of the future of networking and security more generally because hardware is what makes it possible. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, the, the question is, who's hardware and are we talking about custom versus off the shelf, which is sort of an issue that the SDN pushes is, is uh, bringing to the fore right now. It's complicated, it's, uh, you know, we need better motherboard. I mean, we're not going to do, you know, we need faster CPUs and faster memory to run software faster so that we can do more stuff. But that all runs on hardware, you know, and the software, uh, there was an article this week from Howard Marks on network computing talking about the fact that storage capacities aren't growing at the same rate as they have for the last decade. That's going to change, you know, that sort of hardware is going to change things. Yeah. I've seen a lot of um, security products and technologies that um, some of them, to some extent, try to use software to optimize things for speed. But at the end of the day, they end up um, going back to the hardware as they're adding, for example, more complicated testing and they want to keep it, try to keep it as close to real time as possible, you know, especially uh, for uh, DDoS mitigation. So... Uh, yeah, you're always going to have to come back to the hardware for speed uh, for the most part. So, Greg, I've heard you argue, and I, I think you made this case uh, at Interop, about uh, you're anticipating a, a time when we get to network hardware refreshes of like two or three year cycles because there's going to be so much innovation in hardware, mm -hmm. you're going to want to swap out your old boxes to take advantage of the new stuff. I'm curious how you square that with developments that make it sound like we're bringing also more expensive technology into uh, the box. Well, there'll always be some. So there's two sides to this. The networking market, I'm not sure. I'm getting conflicting signals. Some people say that the networking hardware market's getting bigger, and some people say it's getting smaller. There are parts of the networking industry, I think, that are getting bigger. And there are some parts. So in the data center, for example, we're buying less hardware in the data center because we're using 10 gig. And a couple of 10 gig ports uses less switches than we used to have with one gig because we used to have servers with five to 10, 10 gig, one gig ports per box. Now we just have a pair of 10 gigs per box and we have less hardware. And virtualization also means we're using less physical servers and increasing the utilization. So some markets are shrinking overall, I think, and other parts are growing overall. So there are in the WAN around the firewall space. But I had a very interesting meeting this morning with a security company who do WAN optimization, WAFs, and load balancers. And the pace of sales around virtualized 
software products is actually growing much more than I thought. So it might be that we actually see the virtualization, virtual firewalls, virtual routing, virtual load balancing take off faster than we think. And if that happens, then we'll see the hardware market around F5, you know, the, those sorts of specialist products like the, the Palo hardware platform may shrink as these other virtual products take off. It's, I'm not sure, but that how you square these away. Yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good question. But I almost think that on the back end of all of this interest in in uh, this sort of um, virtualized security technology, is the desire for hardware as a service. Uh, you know, in, in other words, um, people don't want to have to deal with uh, maintaining the hardware either. And if they can go to a service provider who's going to do both for them, it'll be a lot more attractive than getting an appliance on site. Even if, the, even if everything else is virtualized inside of it, they're still going to have to deal with the maintenance of that hardware. And so I see that it going away to some extent. So you're talking about folks, instead of buying an appliance, going to a service provider and essentially renting a piece of an appliance or just the service provider sort of amortizing its costs over a bunch of customers? Yeah, well, or, um, you know, customers going to a colo instead, anything to get the hardware out of their data center uh -huh. um, so that they can get all the newest upgrades uh, as per contract without having to worry about it. I think that's more a reflection on the vendor's poor product management. So vendors today... Uh -huh have put software on hardware and made it very difficult to upgrade software and they haven't taken and also there's the cost of it so i'm writing an article at the moment which compares babies versus dolls so the way we buy firewalls today and load balancers today is we buy them like they're babies we take months to buy them and to select the right model and to choose what <laughs> license oh that's good that's and then when good. it comes you know it requires enormous amounts of maintenance and cost to keep it going it needs nap and then as it grows up it gets even more expensive you know, and then what we really need is dolls. We need to go and buy a doll, use it until we're finished, and then toss it in the bin and go and buy the next doll. And <laughs> babies versus dolls, right? And we've got to get away from buying hardware that has these hard-to-use, like a checkpoint firewall, is the most miserable experience to operate that God ever created. They, they require arcane skills from people who have years of training just to turn the thing on and get it bound to the checkpoint administration platform. Well, that's ridiculous. After 20 years of so-called innovation, why is it so hard to turn a firewall on and use just one? And so a big part about it is getting the vendors to stop looking at their firewalls like they're babies, which is great for them, by the way, because they get all that capital revenue in year one and move to dolls, which turns to high turnover, high volume, easily disposed of, you know, they have to have relationships with the customer, for goodness sakes, because they might not buy the next doll from that company. So they really need to up their game. And this is a big transition that's coming. And I think what we're seeing in the cloud is this concept of why go and have another baby? Why don't you just come and buy a doll? It's much easier. But I think the customers will rebel against that when they realize they can buy their own dolls in the private cloud cheaper and more flexibly. Because everything you can do in the public cloud, you can do in the private cloud for far less money overall. Well, that's assuming you have the expertise and the resources and, and the will to do that. And for organizations that are below the security poverty line, uh, you know, they're not going to be playing around with dolls. They're going to have one doll. They're going to hang on to it. And even when it gets end of life, they're going to stockpile replacement parts for that doll until it literally falls apart. Oh, stop uh, it. It's all because of blooming ITIL and ITSM and TOGAF. You, everything's a baby. You can't just throw it out and start again. 
Everybody's afraid of making a change. Everybody's in ITIL, so they're not allowed to be a firewall expert and a networking expert and a server expert. You're only allowed to be, a, so the only thing they know is a firewall, right? And so when you say, I'm gonna change my firewall, these people have a real, have a change management, a self-change management problem because ITIL prevents them from being clever enough. You know, you're not allowed to be a compute guy and a firewall guy. You can only be a firewall guy because these things are so arcane. And the more you focus on just being a firewall guy, the more weird stuff you do on the firewall, because you can. You've got all day to do weird stuff on the firewall. When it would make more sense to say, don't use that complex stuff, just stick with the easy stuff. We need to change our process, right? When you move to the public cloud, what you actually do is throw away all those skills. Because you don't need to manage the firewall, you stop doing all the tricky stuff on the firewall. When you stop being a networking guy, you stop doing policy-based routing or AAA, you change to something much simpler. That's the transition in the public cloud. It's not cheaper in the cloud, it's just because you change your working practices to something that's realistically and honestly viable for the business. Well, this also gets back to your point about these virtualized instances of a security system, uh, be it, you know, or or a load balancing system being sold more because they are in effect a simpler sort of stripped down version. They just give you the sort of key elements that you need, and it hmm. seems like it's becoming the, uh, yep. you know, the, the shovel point under the the rock to get it up and get the hardware out of there, sure, or at least force hardware vendors to respond. So if I go and install a virtual firewall in an Amazon EC2 instance, what have I just done? I've deployed the least complicated, least powerful, least most minimal administrative power of a firewall that I can do. Whereas if I own the firewall, I go and do all these complicated things. I have, you know, all this other work that I fiddle around with that security consultants make me do, like fiddle with public keys and AAA and logging and, you know, all this other stuff that's just a time waste. Whereas the public cloud just says, don't bother with that because you can't do it anyway. Well, why don't we just not do it in the private cloud? I don't know. No. I've been through public clouds a couple of times and I'm sitting there going, anyway, rant over. Where were we? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Cisco Opflex. Uh, Cisco announced a new protocol this week called Opflex, which is intended to communicate policy between the controller and the network. Do you got an opinion on this, Andrew? I do. I think it's an interesting play by Cisco. Um, there seems to be a little bit of a pushback coming from companies like Cisco and HP that suddenly every network engineer now has to become a programmer. Uh, they're talking more about policy, which is something that the network folks are comfortable with. It's a, a medium that they understand and know how to work in. So I feel like not only is it sort of a strategic differentiation from the SDN model we've been talking about, but it also... I think is a way to tell their core audience, we're, we're behind you, we're sticking with you, we're going to allow you to hold on to the skills that you have and you don't have to suddenly become a, you know, a Python genius. Um, I see, so there's a couple of things. Opflex is a policy protocol, so in a real sense it competes with OVSDB if you're following the protocol wars. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't actually see it as all that significant except the fact that Cisco, there's two ways of looking at this. Cisco's made a valuable contribution to the open source community by putting some momentum behind a policy protocol. Yes. If you were a more cynical view, you might take the view that Opflex is defending its fat networking strategy. That is, yes. <laughs> the concept of promise theory is, uh, how do I explain it? Oh, that's right, yes. Let's say you want a sausage roll, and it's a long way to the shop when you want a sausage roll, right? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to send a six-year-old down to the shop to fetch you a sausage roll, you write out the instructions, you say, right, 
uh, here is two dollars here's the way to the shop you go down the end of the street you turn left then you turn right when you get there ask the man for a sausage roll then come home holding the bag very carefully don't take too long or the sausage roll will be cold and this is the way that you come home right mm -hmm. and that is conceptually known as imperative programming that is you yes. actually imper imperiously tell it exactly everything that it needs to do and that's how openflow works opflex is based around the concept of declarative programming models or promise theory and that is you have a teenager who's about you know about 13 to 15, old enough to be able to walk and know the way to the shop, but not intelligent enough to actually know how to fetch a sausage roll without some instructions. So you say, here you go, 15-year-old, here's $10, go and fetch me a sausage roll. The teenager can find his way to the shop and come back and give you the change and give you a sausage roll. So, And that's known as declarative programming. Opflex, now that assumes, of course, that in the case of the imperative model, you have a very thin networking device that has bare competency and all the smart work is done in the control plane work is done externally. In Opflex, you require a device which has some level of competency and processing capability to be able to self-determine or intelligently determine the, the outcome of that command. Make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. Right? Yes. So Opflex makes sense if you want to sell an expensive device that has lots of features, defends your existing market. On the other hand, your controller is now less complicated. You can work with anybody's southbound device. And if you say, go to the sausage, go fetch me a sausage roll, the device can say, this is how I fetch a sausage roll. Yes. But of course, it's far more complicated having lots of teenagers because they often don't work the way you expect. <laughs> they have their own priorities for sure. That's right. Well, and Google's released a, uh, announced there was an article on the Wall Street Journal uh, where they were talking, saying that, uh, we found that declarative models don't work. They simply don't scale. Well, I think it's not necessarily fair to compare, you know, a typical enterprise to a Google scale organization, though, either. Google's been doing SDN a lot longer than Cisco has, and in the real world. Sure. And so if Google's going to come out to me and say, we've tried to do, we, we've looked at different controller models, you know, the, the loose controllers and the tight controllers. And what we found is that the OpenFlow model works better than the promise theory model. Mm -hmm. Makes me sort of wonder if, I mean, you're asking the software to do a lot. Remember that Cisco's got, anybody who wants to use OpFlex means that you have like every device in the world has to present some sort of OpFlex verb up to receive policy. Yes. So you're asking an awful lot of people to come together and agree on what commands are inside of OpFlex. Oh, absolutely. I get, it feels like you're talking about a sort of let's take the most rational view about how to do this best, and I'm thinking from more of a human side of one, Cisco wanting to defend its market, and two, having a whole bunch of people in organizations who are comfortable with Cisco and also want to keep their jobs and are hearing how SDN is going to destroy what they do. So I feel like from the human side, you could say, yes, uh, this you know Google saying – Declarative doesn't work, but on the human side, we've got folks saying, I want to keep my job. I like Cisco. I'm comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. They're talking a language that I can relate to, and so let's investigate this path. I think there's value in both models. I'm just, I mean, everybody's sort of running around. One of the interesting things about Opflex that I saw is that uh, I saw a dialogue going on between Mike Devorkin and Martin Casado. Mike Devorkin is the, was the chief scientist, chief science officer for NCEMI and largely the 
progenitor of the promise theory model that a Cisco ACI developed. And uh -huh. Martin Casado, of course, is the um, chief technical officer of VMware's NSX division. And they were dialoguing backwards and forwards about how this is a great thing for open source. And Martin has a pre open source project called Congress. And he says this protocol will be perfect for Congress to deliver policy down to devices. So there might be some happiness associated there. It's not a competitive thing. It's just customers may have a situation where they have to choose one model, imperative or declarative SDN. And that may happen in the future is what I'm trying, I think where I'm headed. Yes, I agree. I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. I'm just trying to point out the differences between the two. Mm -hmm. Wendy, anything else? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just keep thinking, uh, when in doubt, abstract, and uh, that that seems to be a direction that keeps going, coming up all the time. Um, I was um, talking this morning with Chris Swan over at Cohesive FT and asked him, a, you know, his opinion about OpFlex, and he said it was something that was needed, but he wondered where it, whether people were going to end up ignoring it like Zacamole. So, um, I, I, yeah, I think that it's it's not finished yet. There's a lot to be, you know, to wait and see about. I um, am just uh, amazed and intrigued by the amount of dust that's continuing to be kicked up uh, every time I feel like I have a grasp on the SDN architectures and the, the market positioning, something new uh, appears. So it's it's interesting and wonderful and a little bit exhausting. Yeah, in our um, in our uh, preview from last year, uh, summarizing the year, uh, Eric Hanselman, our chief analyst. Uh, wrote the headline, SDN is revealed as an elaborate hoax. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the things that if you're listening to this and you don't know what SDN is, you probably really don't care. This is a bit like arguing, uh, debating the relative merits of open OpFlex versus OVSDB is a bit like arguing the difference between EIGRP and OSPF, where all you care about is connecting computers together. It's pointless. And the fact that anybody's making a big deal out of this is kind of comical to me because in the reality is the only people who care are the nerds and the fact that this is making the front page of the media sites is all wrong. This is not the message that Cisco should be sending to its customers. Cisco should be saying, we've got this amazing product that's going to make your business better, but all they can bring to market is we've got a new product, a new protocol called OpFlex. I think if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what SDN is, then you have obviously stumbled onto the wrong podcast. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. In this. <laughs> Fair enough. And well, if you made it this far, you know, our hats are off to you. <laughs> well, I think my coffee's cold. Andrew, what about yours? I'm ready for a refill. All right. Wendy, where can people find you on the internet? Everywhere Heartbleed is still there. Uh, still available. Um, no, I'm uh, usually I hang out on Twitter uh, with the handle 451Wendy. Or you can go over and look at 451research.com and uh, from time to time I contribute something over there. And thank you so much for joining us. Andrew, what's up with you this week? Uh, hard at work on Interop New York. Mark your calendars. Uh, and also a shameless plug for my book, Wasteland Blues. Please check it out on Amazon. I can highly recommend Wasteland Blues. I did read it. In fact, I couldn't put it down. It was excellent. I did enjoy it. Uh, although I did go out and buy another book on apocalyptic fiction, and I actually haven't finished that because I was starting to get depressed. So there's only so much. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> How you managed to write that book and not get depressed in the process, but it's a great book. I can highly recommend it to anybody who's listening. We missed a couple of weeks last week because of Interop in Las Vegas. We had much good fun there. True? True, indeed. 
true and people said nice things about us forward and of course i'm greg farrow you can find me on my blog at etherealmind.com and on the twitter as at etherealmind you can find the show notes on today's show in packetpushers.net you can follow the packet pushes on twitter where you'll see the shows published don't forget to sign up on itunes to subscribe to the show and we'll be back again in a week or two if there's news that's fit to talk about